Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? On today's show, freedom of movement is finished, but net migration is now more than half a million. Why does Britain struggle to talk about immigration intelligently? As Tory MPs rebel over housing targets, again, we ask what could really combat nimbyism. And as artificial intelligence gets better and better at faking images, we talk about how it's going to change our lives and the new risks it brings. Gavin Esler is a journalist and author of How Britain Ends. Hello, Gavin. Hello. Hi. The Supreme Court ruled last week that the Scottish government can't hold a referendum without Westminster's consent. There was a march through your home city, Glasgow, over the weekend. Was this a setback for Nicola Sturgeon or has it emboldened her? Well, you know, having read some of the papers in London, it's a terrible thing. It's an awful blunder and so on. I mean, it's just nonsense, I think. Um, You know, I spent the weekend in Edinburgh. Nicola Sturgeon's got lots of problems. The health service, the cost of living crisis. There were demonstrations about, you know, what are we going to do about paying our bills? Um, The ferry system doesn't work. There's problems on the trains, you name it. One thing she doesn't have a problem with, though, is the idea that uh, the Supreme Court in London, quite rightly, it seems, interprets the law that was passed by the Westminster Parliament in London, which says that the Scottish government, the Scottish Parliament, cannot uh, organise a referendum along these lines. Nobody quibbles with that. But what it does is, uh, given that, uh, you know, after after the 2014 um, uh, independence referendum and Brexit happened, which was clearly a material change in circumstances. Alex Salmon wrote a book saying the dream shall never die. And this gives uh, you know Nicola Sturgeon the, the option now to run a campaign about these people in Westminster that we, meaning Scotland, didn't vote for. We haven't voted for a Conservative government since 1955. They won't let us leave uh, or even try to leave a voluntary union when they have managed to get us to leave the European Union, because it's a union of democracies, the European Union was happy with that, but somehow Westminster won't let us have our say. So it's perfect for her, frankly. I mean, uh, if there were a referendum, she might actually lose it. If there's not going to be a referendum, there's a sense of grievance, and uh, the Scottish word is uh, thrown. I'm, I'm quite thrown. That means stubborn, sometimes beyond my own best interests. And this will just go on and on and on. But the idea that it's a terrible own goal from Nicola Sturgeon, I'm afraid I don't buy. Hannah Fern is a columnist for The Independent. Hello, Hannah. Hi. The head of the bright blue think tank stood down this week saying the Tories had abandoned millennials. I mean, he's got a point clearly, but have older Tories noticed? Well, um, they have, but there was a lot of mocking and sort of sarcasm on, on social media about this from both the left and the right. Oh, wasn't this a terrible great loss of a, you know, a great mind, ha-ha, suggesting that he really didn't add very much to the, uh, the political debate on the right and, um, you know, good riddance. I think that's uh, overlooking the point, which is that I think he's about 38 years old. He's an, he's an older millennial. He feels very strongly and, and, and gave an exit interview to The Guardian uh, about 
how angry he is about um, the Tories' failure to understand the issues that face that generation, whether that's the cost of childcare, housing, which we'll talk about later. And he and his think tank, which was established in 2014, spoke very eloquently, frankly, on on those issues. They came up with policy alternatives um, that were roundly ignored once the Cameron era was over. His his organisation were very much Cameronite. They were of that sort of um, generation of what looked like potentially progressive uh, conservatism, although... You know, you may argue whether it was or not, but uh, that's where they fitted in. Um, he's stepping back. He's probably quite right to think about his own future. Um, he clearly doesn't fit in with current parliamentary conservatism. But where does this leave the Tories if people like this are fleeing? We've also seen the departure of Chloe Smith and a couple of other MPs saying they're not going to stand at the next election. I think Tories should be really worried about this. I saw, interestingly, an op-ed in The Telegraph today, which was sort of a very shouty, angry thing about socialism in schools creating a kind of um, extremely left-wing generation of children. It smacks to me of panic, really. They know there's a a large, uh, you know, generation of, of voters who really can't see any anything in conservatism that benefits them. Um, And and where's the next generation coming through uh, to the party as well? MPs, policy thinkers, not really there. Yeah, Ryan is no fool and he could have been the future once for the Tories, but evidently not yet. Nina Schick is a journalist and online misinformation expert, author of Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse. Hi, Nina. Hi, Ross. Great to be back. It is. It's great to have you back. It's been a while since you've been on, isn't it? I know. Yeah. What's been going on? Oh, nothing much. No, no. You miss nothing. Qu- no. Quiet summer, right? <laughs> Last weekend, Elon Musk locked most of his Twitter employees out of their offices, unbanned Donald Trump, and thousands of users were sharing their profiles on other sites, thinking this would be the end. But a week later, Twitter endures. How long do you give it? You know what? I actually think it's going to endure. Um, it's maybe not like the conventional wisdom right now. You're looking at the antics from, you know, Donald Trump being invited back onto the platform to the fact that it's now going to become a new hub again for QAnon and all the other nonsense uh, that seems to be taking place. But I think that um, Musk is going to will it to survive. Um, and the kind of changes that he's got in the pipeline mean that this platform is going to be very different from what we've seen before. But I don't think it's over for Twitter yet. Before we get started, an Oh God, What Now public service announcement. Our online Christmas market is open now for all your festive gifting needs with 15% off for Black Friday, which I think is now passed, but it's still 15% off, so take advantage. Just go to podmarket.co.uk for a range of quality presents from Oh God, What Now? and our companion podcasts, The Bunker and Doomsday Watch. Get the conversation rolling on Christmas morning with a woke snowflake t-shirt or mug for your favourite Brexity uncle. Festoon the kitchen with the Ho 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 God, What Now? Christmas tea towel. Or even a Doomsday Watch tea towel, if you fancy one, just to mop up those oil spills. And remember the golden moments of 2022 with the tofu-eating Wokarati and anti-growth coalition mugs. There's something for everyone at podmarket.co.uk. Order now for delivery in time for Christmas. Thousands of people in China took to the streets at the weekend to protest against its zero-Covid policy. The Chinese leadership won't unlock because it has less effective vaccines than the rest of the world and it hasn't persuaded enough of its elderly people to take the jab. 
Gavin, people have been calling for Xi Jinping to resign. This is unprecedented, isn't it? Yes, it it is. Uh, It is quite extraordinary. I was there in uh, the beginning of the Tiananmen Square demonstrations many years ago, uh, which is the only kind of parallel, although I don't think they were going similar ways. And what was very interesting then was the students, uh, I was just there at the start, I wasn't, fortunately for me, not there at the end when the killings took place. But the students were talking about democracy. And what they were really talking about when you ask them what is democracy, they understood that we in the West were somehow richer than them. And the other bits, they didn't really, they weren't that bothered with. And Deng Xiaoping, the leader at the time, was ruthless in the end in putting them down. But he did figure out that the way forward for China was to be richer and people would be content, which is what has happened. But Xi now has a a whole series of problems, obviously. If people's lives are disrupted, they can't get food, they can't get food for their kids, they can't get to work. This is disrupting the unspoken social contract that was begun by Deng Xiaoping all those, those years ago. And Xi has also got the foreign policy problems, which is associated with with Russia, which is a uh, you know the, the the fading light that is Putin. So uh, even though he appears to be completely politically secure, the discontent in the cities, in particular, is something which will be very worrying. And one other thing I would say, I mean, I'm no China expert, but the China experts I've talked to says, watch out when there are demonstrations. They go on for a bit in China, and then. The, uh, the the authorities don't just send in the, the, the riot police and others. They send in the soup kitchens and they give people noodles and that's a sign that you better go home otherwise you might get shot. I'm not quite sure where we are on that or whether Xi fits into that rather cynical pattern, but uh, it's going to be a period of great difficulty for a lot of people, it seems. A BBC journalist was arrested and beaten by the police after filming the protests. Do you think this is going to affect British policy towards China? Because Rishi Sunak is giving a speech on just that subject uh, soon after we're recording. Well, it will be very interesting to see what Mr. Sunak has to say about that. I mean, look, we have had this delusion about global Britain and sending an, an aircraft carrier to the Pacific and all this kind of stuff. We've also seen what the practicalities of that are, that uh, China can do what it wishes to do in Hong Kong. And despite the fact for many many years it was a British colony, there's not much we can do about it. So Britain is a trading partner. Britain is of interest. uh, But there are many, many bigger players, obviously, including the United States uh, in, in this. So I'm not sure whether Rishi Sunak's words, whatever they may be, will carry a lot of weight, frankly, with Xi Jinping. China's repression in Hong Kong is one of the reasons why net migration to the UK has exceeded half a million over the past year, according to the Office for National Statistics. Many Hong Kongers are entitled to come and live and work in the UK because Hong Kong, of course, used to be a British colony. While migration from the EU has slowed down because of Brexit, resettlement schemes for Hong Kongers, Ukrainians and Afghans have boosted the numbers, plus a bounce back after the halter movement during the pandemic. But as the treatment of Ukrainians and Afghans shows, it's one thing to take people in, it's another to look after them properly. So why are these systems failing and why can't politicians talk about it in a clear-eyed way? Hannah, let's talk about the small boats. The migrants who arrive on them are usually sent to a centre in Manston in Kent. And the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, was asked about why it had become so overcrowded at a committee hearing last week. Uh, It wasn't her best performance. Uh, What was her defence? 
No, it wasn't. And if you actually, if you want to go back and have a look at that performance, on, look at the recording, you can see the faces on the members of the committee as they're questioning her, listening to their res- her responses. Um, and don't forget, that's a, that's a cross-party committee. And the looks at her responses really tells the story. She, um, her defence was simply to blame asylum seekers for coming over in the first place and blame the forces that, that pushed them towards uh, us and blamed um, anybody who f- felt as she said, was uh, moved to abuse the generosity of the British people. So almost blaming us for being too understanding of those who need uh, or potentially want to claim asylum here. Um, She also refused to accept her legal responsibility for ensuring that Manson operated properly. We know that she had received legal advice warning her that this overcrowding situation was was at risk of occurring and then was indeed occurring and, and in detail about the risks of that. So, you know, the health risks. One uh, um, person has since died of uh, diphtheria who was uh, there um, and the conditions are described uh, in squalid terms. Um, So yes, she absolutely refused to accept uh, any responsibility for this. Another amusing moment, um, if you want to try and find some light relief in this, was her a uh, staggering um, failure to come up with an answer to a question about the legal routes of passage here. So um, there was a really strong question about what, what would you do if you were someone who was perhaps a young East African boy who had of uh, 16, who had relatives already over here, had every legal right to claim asylum and stay with those relatives for, um, f- to, to escape uh, war, uh, war, conflict. Fundamentally, because she couldn't answer the question, she couldn't answer the question because there is no legal right of passage. That person would have to face um, the small boat's uh, route to come here, and that's clearly morally wrong. And her her blustering and embarrassment around it simply exposed that. So yes, not a good day for the Home Secretary, but useful for all of us for understanding the problem. Really, Manston is now empty. Where have the four thousand migrants, massively more than the sixteen hundred that it was supposed to house? Who were there? Where have they gone? Well, they've been moved into hotels uh, all around the country. This is an interesting one for a number of reasons. First of all, I think it really is distressing in the echo of the situation with the care homes crisis in COVID. We know that a large number of these um, uh, refugees, asylum seekers, potentially did have diphtheria. It was passing through the, the, um, the community there. And they've been, without any testing... They've been sent out to hotels housing refugees all across the country. What's going? That only came out because of some excellent reporting by a former colleague of mine, Sean Linton, at the Sunday Times. I expect the government wished that was uh, he hadn't picked up on that one on such a busy brief at the moment. But yeah, I mean, shocking. Have they learned nothing from what happened in COVID? And and the result of that, we we wait to see. It's only a, a few days later. The other interesting thing about the use of these hotels is it's a kind of classic, the word hotel sparks a very emotional response. Um, you know, if you're, if you're someone who's really struggling with the cost of living now, maybe you're struggling on the social housing waiting list, and you hear that somebody who may or may not actually have the right to be here is being housed in a hotel, that, so that gives you a really kind of emotive response because it feels like they're being put up in luxury. Actually, these hotels and the lives that people live within them are astonishingly bad, very, very um, unsuitable accommodation, whole families in single rooms. Uh, and the people who are staying there, particularly the Afghan, I spoke to Afghan refugees staying in, in 
um, hotels in London and in Southampton earlier this year. And their lives are completely controlled by life in that hotel. They can't have visitors. They can't choose what they eat. Even they have to eat at set times uh, and even the food that they're provided. They have no control over their environment. They can't talk to anyone. They're not allowed to talk to anybody about these conditions. They have um, all kinds of and work restrictions placed on them as well. And so it's it's hard to imagine how how depressing that life is and how it actually entrenches dependence. So certainly people who left Afghanistan, they came here wanting to work, wanting to build a new life, but this hotel system doesn't work for them. So I can't see that this is this is a great resolution to the, the crisis there. And now we, have, we did have a processing centre that maybe five months ago was working pretty well. Now it's empty, unnecessarily. And, um, yeah... <laughs> The number of Albanians crossing the channel this way has increased a lot in the last year. What do we know about why they are trying to come to the UK? Yes, the, the figures are quite astonishing. In 2020, 50 migrants from Albania um, crossed. Uh, and the, the, the figure from the nine months, uh, first nine months of 2022 was 11,241. So that's a staggering rise. Um, the, the, thing, the kind of pressures that are, that are pushing them here are, you know, corruption, political corruption, extreme poverty, poor wages, um, really high rates of youth unemployment, which obviously means you've got a large number of young men who really want a better life for themselves. And uh, and actually, there's, a, there's an incredibly aggressive gang culture, frankly, which is using social media to attract people into what basically selling honest work and actually attracting people into criminality saying that there's there's a better life for them with with genuine opportunities and then they get unfortunately trapped in in these cycles of, of exploitation so it's really this is a really interesting and difficult one to talk about we have to be honest about the criminality involved there we have to be honest about the fact that large numbers of these people are young men who actually don't have the right to claim asylum here and when they get here they probably will be sent back and the government has has actually moved to set up a kind of rapid process uh, to ensure that those who would not be able to claim asylum are are sent back. But those who are accepted, the vast majority uh, of, of people who have been accepted um, in their claim from Albania since 2020 are trafficked women and their children. So the system is working in that sense. And so we mustn't be derailed by this idea that some politicians would like to um, capitalise on that that you know the system isn't working because there are a large men large number of able bodied single men young men coming over actually they they're not staying the people who are staying are those women who've been abused Gavin the government reacted to the half a million figure for net migration by announcing a crackdown on foreign students doing what it calls low quality courses what would a cut in numbers mean for universities uh, well, I, I'll come to universities in a moment. What would it mean for the country? You know, we used to witter on endlessly about a brain drain because bright British people were going abroad to study. And suddenly we have a brain gain because all these people are coming here to study. I mean, it's St Andrews University. 39% of the students are international students. And St Andrews is reckoned to be one of the greatest universities anywhere in the world. In Kent, where I am, at 16%. There's about 20% a lot of students. So it's not just that universities would lose some money, but they would. But we would lose some of the most talented people in the world who actually think Britain's quite a good place to study. And it's also our soft power. 
you know, the universities of Britain are from from Aberdeen in the north right down to, to the south of England, highly regarded around the world, not just because we teach in English, but because we've got so many experts. So what we have is this really uninformed, quite idiotic debate about um, about um, migrants and about university students and about people who overstay their their visas and so on. There are ways of sorting it out, but they're not, you know, I mean, the, the best this government has come up with is we will send them to Rwanda, which is precisely the kind of country in Africa that the conservative MP who was questioning Suella Braverman about people who are oppressed coming here, how what would be the legal route? That's precisely the kind of country he could have been referring to. So, you know, we, we are unable, it would appear, to have a grown-up conversation about this because it gets us into very uncomfortable areas, which could include, for example, the use of identity cards before you can actually get employment and other things. I mean, and also, of course, having proper relations with the rest of the European Union, without whom some of this um, nonsense about pushing back migrants in the channel and all all that uh, just is is that. It's vacuous. Ending freedom of movement from leaving the EU was supposed to bring down overall migration. Of course, it hasn't. But there is an argument on parts of the left that it's fairer not to privilege Europeans in immigration policy. And I hear this occasionally from especially people on the, um, shall we say, more Corbynite left. What's your take on that? Well, I'm not sure uh, quite who is privileged at all, really, by our immigration system. I can't, uh, I can't think of very many people who are. And there have been such uncertainties about it. I mean, it's, to put it another way, it is obvious that people from neighbouring countries are more likely to move here than people from the other side of the world, simply because it's, uh, it, 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 it's closer. Uh, why did we have lots of Irish immigrants in the turn of, this, turn of the 19th to 20th centuries? Because Ireland was relatively poor and people could come here. So, uh, whereas we didn't have many Korean or Japanese migrants. Well, now it's slight, slightly different. But I have to say that that the sort of welcoming uh, of Britain, or particularly England, the hostile environment to 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 people that Theresa May announced without actually doing anything about it, the the idea that we were going to have somehow miraculously a hundred thousand net uh, migrants a year, David Cameron talked about. June 2022, it's about half a million. We just don't have a coherent policy because we're not really prepared to face up to some of the some of the rather hard decisions about how how to do this. And they involve, as I say, relations with Europe. And they may involve having, if you've got people who come here and who can get a job, and all HMRC cares about is do they pay their taxes? They don't care if they're here legally. That's another department. We do have a, a kind of systemic problem, which we haven't really thought through. Nina, are we a more welcoming country than the right wing press and the Conservative Party like to pretend, do you think? I mean, when it comes to immigration or migration policy, it's just such a huge mess, as Gavin and Hannah have already pointed out. And the fundamental reason is because we've never had a honest conversation, right? Even in the early days of Brexit, when the campaign was getting started, we were all holding our head in our hands because there was the willful conflation of illegal and legal migration, EU migration, asylum seekers, illegal economic migrants, and that has just continued. And now we're just careening from reactive um, policy to reactive policy, whether it's the tens of thousands 
headline figure, which now successive conservative governments have had. And it seems like net migration now is higher than ever before, or whether it's like, now we shall tackle the international students. They're the problem. Oh, it's, it's Macron. He's sending the boats over. And it's just so intellectually dishonest. And it's such a disservice to this country because I mean, I'm an immigrant. I've naturalized here now. And although, of course, um, I've also encountered the really horrific parts of the UK, UK migration and border system, including my Nepali cousin who had a valid visa here, like being turned away and then deported at Heathrow Airport just because they didn't like the look of her. I've experienced that side of it, but I've also experienced the fact that Britain can also be a very open and welcoming nation. And I don't think that it is a country of bigots. And I do think that the sense of having a fair system really does matter to the British citizens. And you see that, of course, in the kind of demographic makeup of Britain as a country. You know, this is a country that has had a lot of inward migration for many decades now. So I just think this kind of intellectual dishonesty, which you see just continuing decade after decade, is just so frustrating because it's not beyond us to have a better conversation about how to deal with immigration. And, um, uh, well, it's not beyond us, one would think, but apparently it is. <laughs> <laughs> and Hannah, I mean, Keir Starmer, on, as well, is treading a fine line on immigration. He gave a speech last week saying British companies needed to cut their dependency on foreign workers. Does he convince you in what he said about it? No, I think I feel that he's got caught up in this rhetoric, exactly as Nina described. We, I think, as a country, are much more fair in our attitudes, but but we are given this um, kind of political cycle of um, of uh, intellectually uh, weak arguments that that don't don't help people have a, a proper conversation. Exactly as you've said. So I think Starmer's falling on the wrong side of it. Um, I think we are much more. Uh, understanding, perhaps for a couple of reasons. We're kind of more sympathetic to the push factors now. Uh, people, um, reasons why they may need to be here, We've, especially with Ukraine. I think we, we understand what's going on in the world and we, we are sympathetic. Um, I also think that post-Brexit, there's a kind of greater understanding of how much we rely on foreign labour. You hear people talking about, you know, the... the um, nurses being the jewel in the crown of the NHS and so on. How many of our NHS nurses were not, you know, born in the UK? A huge number, a huge percentage, and, and people completely understand and respect and value their contribution to, you know, British society. So, I mean, and just actually anecdotally, my own experience, and I, I live in South London, my daughter's primary school has had 60 families join the school community in, since June. That's a huge number, but the response has been overwhelmingly positive and hugely supportive. And the, the, the effort that, you know, families within the school have put into welcoming and providing for those people has been great and also really reassuring that actually we don't live among a sea of bigotry that some of our politicians almost wish, are willing on us. So I think Starmer has got it wrong, actually. And I think I know he's he was trying to address businesses um, and not kind of, you know, your, your general voter. But um, but still, perhaps misunderstanding how much businesses uh, know they rely on foreign labor and want to continue to do so because it's a it's a model that's working. 
And yet, Gavin, from most of the British media, you wouldn't guess that there was or wouldn't know that there was that generosity of spirit. Why are we so bad at covering this? I mean, nine and a half million of us in Britain weren't born in this country. And yet the voice of immigrants is so quiet. Well, I wouldn't say quiet. So, so small in this country. The Esslers were 17th century Protestant migrants from Germany who joined with um, the Scottish army uh, because they were being persecuted in Bavaria during the Thirty Years' War. You know, so I'm, I don't really remember that myself, but, uh, but, <laughs> but I'm on the, on the same page. I would say, I would say one thing though. Um, this generosity of spirit, it does infect, we, you began with talking about my native city, Glasgow. It, in Glasgow, they are welcoming of immigrants. Not everybody. I mean, there are racists and, and bigots and all kinds of people everywhere. But um, uh, if you're a Glaswegian, you're a Ouija. You can't, that's what you're called. If you're a refugee, you're a refugee. You're one of us. Not for everybody. I'm not, you know, uh, glossing over it. But when uh, the Home Office, which again is from London, is not the Scottish Home Office, tried to uh, get rid of some people from uh, South Glasgow, I think it was, the South Side, local people just laid under the vans and said, you're not taking them. They're our neighbours. Now, maybe that was right or wrong. I don't know the circumstances of this. But all, all I'm saying is that the welcome is there. Uh, the media reporting of it, however, is that there's the other, this wedge of you know terrible people who are coming over here to do terrible things, apparently, like work in the NHS, for example, or do the jobs that the rest of us won't do. So I think we could clean up our act a bit. But again, uh, the, the standard of political debate is such that many of us who are journalists have to take our cue from that, even though we have to also understand that that's not how many people may feel. You might think this government isn't that keen on house building, but for some Tory MPs, the push to build has gone quite far enough. They want to scrap compulsory housing targets for councils in the levelling up bill, making those targets advisory only. This is an issue that's actually splitting the right. One think tank director, Robert Colville, said making the targets voluntary would enshrine nimbyism as the governing principle of British society. He said it was selfish. Hannah, you've written recently about downsizing when elderly people sell the family home and move into a smaller place. And it's not happening very much, is it? No, it's not happening. And it hasn't done for maybe two decades. Everyone talks about it as kind of a great solution to some of the pressures in the housing market, uh, partly because, um, you know, it, it genuinely releases numbers. So if people start moving around, there's there's more housing stock available and, and that makes the market move a bit more. Um, and partly because, uh, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, it's a form of bed blocking, basically bedroom blocking. If you've got two people living in a five or six bedroom family home, what's happening to the family who three or four decades ago would have moved into that house, they are stuck in a two-bedroom house or a three-bedroom house, incredibly overcrowded. So, um, and, and this actually happens in social housing too. There are people who are in the social housing sector, housing policy experts who've worked very hard on trying to create a kind of moving market within social housing so that tenants can move around as their family circumstances change. And again, even within that, even where you'd think that councils and housing associations actually have some levers, it's really hard to, to move people around. And it's partly to do with attitudes. People just don't want to move, especially as they're getting older. 
Um, but it's really short-sighted and there's a lot of evidence to show that the earlier that you move into a, a very appropriate home for um, later years, the less chance you are likely to have any kind of ill health that, that, um, he- that speeds up, you know, physical decline. So a fall, those kind of things. Um, and there are so many positive reasons, but people don't want to do it. I spoke to my own parents about it. They didn't want to do it. <laughs> they uh, bought a larger home after I'd left home. <laughs> so um, it's a really difficult cultural problem, and we do need to find a way through it. In recent years, lots of people have been encouraged to go for shared ownership if they can't afford to buy. But there's a downside to that, isn't there? Oh, my God, this is my pet hate. <laughs> so I've been covering housing issues for quite a long time. My, my first job in my career was on a, a very specialist magazine called Inside Housing. And shared ownership was this great sort of wheeze from the social housing sector designed to kind of give themselves, force themselves really into the property development to find new ways to fund social housing. Um, so they, and they also thought, we well, you know, there is a, a form of housing need, which is people who are in good jobs, but who simply can't afford rising prices will maybe never afford to buy on the open market, but they can certainly sustain a regular small mortgage payment. So there are really good reasons in theory for setting it up. The problem is it's a massive trap and I'm a huge cynic about it. And the way the social housing sector has used it as a simply a cash cow for their social housing business, where the government has stepped back instead of really continuing to put extra pressure on the government to properly fund social housing, I think is morally problematic. We're moving into an era where people who are already in shared ownership are going to be in crisis. Their rent is rising. So if you are in shared ownership, you pay mortgage on the percentage you own, you you pay um, rent on the percentage you don't own. And often you also pay a service charge because you're in a block of flats maybe. Um, So your outgoings are significant not really comparable. It's actually really probably more expensive overall than if you could actually get the deposit together for for, for ownership independently. Um, yeah, if your mortgage is going up, we've all seen the situation with mortgage uh, rates at the moment. Um, if you've also got your rent going up and you're trapped in a building which is hit by the cladding scandal so you can't sell, you're in dire straits at the moment. And these are often vulnerable families who, you know, should really have qualified for social housing in previous generations, but don't under current housing need standards. Um, and it's a small demographic, but one that government and housing has failed. And um, in my view, if you're thinking about shared ownership, don't do it. <laughs> Gavin, let's talk about nimbyism. John Harris wrote a nuanced piece in The Guardian last weekend. He argued that you're going to struggle to get communities to accept new housing unless they're promised more transport, GPs and schools too, because they will argue there simply aren't enough facilities for people moving in. Do these people sometimes have a point? Yes, in in brief they do. And certainly, uh, I know it from uh, from friends, pressure on schools, for example, more people move in uh, and uh, they feel that the teachers can't cope. And where, where, did, where do the GPs come from? Where do the people that we all rely on? I would say one uh, counter to Hannah's argument, I do know of uh, of a couple who uh, I try not to identify them, but they um, they they were they hit about the age of sixty and they decided to downsize to a two bedroom flat in the centre of London. And I said, "Why are you doing it?" And they said, "Because because our kids are finishing university and they might want to move home back to our house." <laughs> so so you can see it in different ways. But the the, the, the nimbyism point is. Is a good one. I also know I, I, I've got a friend who's has been very active in the environmental uh, 
movement and so on. And he has been, he's come to the, come to the view that there are certain house builders who can be uh, persuaded to improve things, to put aside a bit of land for a bit of wild space, who can have, you know, bird boxes in their, in their homes, who can build a bit differently. But he's run up against a couple of things. One is straightforward nimbyism. We don't like new houses, period. We don't care what they look like. And also land banking, the speculation on, on, on land that we should just sit on and eventually will develop. So it's a very, very complex problem. And I'm not sure. I, I think the divisions within the Conservative Party itself and within uh, show just how complicated this is going to be to sort out. Nina, we hear more and more about an intergenerational divide in British politics. Is this the big thing that's feeding it? There absolutely has to be some kind of, I mean, I'm not going to profess to be an expert in the UK housing market or even in the intergenerational divide in politics, but there is something rotten in the state of Denmark when most young people just can't, you know, including a working couple of professionals um, cannot afford to buy their own home. Um, my own observations, kind of as somebody who's been living here for a while, but who originally um, is a foreigner is that one thing that's really unique is this cultural expectation of home ownership as a benchmark, right? Everybody's aspiring to own their own home, which is certainly not the case in other European countries. And that must be tied to the fact that you have very weak rights as a tenant, right? That's the first thing. And then secondly, there's still this expectation that your home is where you make your money, that that's where you invest your money in order to see it accrue to see your wealth accrue over the decades. Now that might have been true for the baby boomers, but I don't know if that is true for today's generation. Nonetheless, that expectation still seems to be prevalent. So people would rather invest their money in a home than let's say on the stock market. Um, The second thing I've observed over countless conversations over British dinner tables, (laughs) uh, including in my own British family, is the kind of hackneyed stereotype of millennials eating avocados and not not saving up for their deposit you know and their parents they lived in a shoebox and they were rationing and you know they worked really hard therefore they deserve the wealth that they accrued um, in their property that they bought for 50,000 which is now worth 3 million that seems to be pretty ingrained so i think uh, it seems that for millennials, there, there is an uphill struggle to say, yes, you know, we can have cheap holidays to Spain. And yes, we can buy a lot more clothes and have flashy tablets and big screen TVs. But no, we cannot afford to buy a home. Um, uh, so the, the fact that we can have different kind of luxuries, which were, you know, not available to the boomers doesn't seem to, you know, when it comes to home ownership. That obviously I'd rather be able to buy a home than um, have a cheap holiday in Spain. Um, And then the third and fourth observations are like, you cannot absolutely not in the Southwest. You cannot dream of getting on the housing ladder unless you have a significant liquidity moment. Let's say you're a very successful entrepreneur. You sell your business or you have family wealth. I mean, there is absolutely no way you're getting on the housing ladder otherwise because the prices are just so insane And without significant firepower, it's just not happening. And this argument that, well, you could buy a house if you go to the Outer Hebrides. I mean, like, that's just not going to work, right? Uh, It depends on where you're working and um, other things like school for your kids, etc. And the final point I want to make, because this is just such a bugbear for me, is the quality of the homes. And Hannah, you, you, uh, you will 
probably have a good understanding of this, but like insulation. Why? Why are British homes not insulated? It's like the bane of my life when, um, you know, you, you kind of go into a beautiful British home and you're just, you sleep in a sleeping bag <laughs> <laughs> because it's so cold, you know? Uh, and obviously this is now coming to the forefront with the energy crisis. But again, this is, I suppose, because our winters are milder than they are in continental Europe where, you know, buildings, old buildings, for instance, in Germany, they'll have been built with double glazing, even at the turn of the century, mm. not so in the UK. And I suppose also with successive developments in the 60s and onwards, I think Hannah will know, but it's that I think the building regulations are way more lax, right? So we have terrible, terrible housing standards even now. And one of the worst failures of the last 20 years is knowing the energy crisis is coming, knowing where we are with, um, uh, you know, situation around climate change, um, the absolute failure of the, you know, of government and developers to insist on better standards and retrofitting on installing solar and so on has been astonishing, really. And you know, there was about fifteen years ago there was a big push on it, but with with everything that happened post two thousand and eight, it just got lost. Um, and it's it's depressing, especially when a lot of these uh, issues around standards. It's um, we've seen it with the situation with mold and ventilation, with the death, tragic death of that poor two-year-old boy. You know, a lot of the time, this is social housing we're talking about, and housing provided to the neediest people with the worst standards. Yeah, I mean, ventilation is insulation is bad, and ventilation is bad as well, because it, and often it's a trade-off between you know if you need if you get the fresh air, the cold comes in, and if you don't, you grow mold, and it's this <laughs> catch twenty-two I find in my house, and I'm lucky enough to live in a house we own, but it's still a struggle to overcome those problems. Hannah, is there anything the government can do to encourage councils to want to allow more houses? I think I've, I've, I struggle slightly with this idea of like kind of blaming councils because they are there's the pressures of the nimbyism that you're describing. I have to say, I um, Robert Colvin and I do not agree on very much, but we very fundamentally agree on housing issues. That he, he's right that um, you know you've just got there's got something's got to be done. Councils do want to build. They understand the kind of social benefits, the um, economic benefits of development in their area. It's the red tape. Uh, around development that the government puts in place and the nimbyism that, that's causing all of these problems. And I think if you free up local government to operate in a way that it believes is, is right for its area, you'll get better results, actually, than this kind of over-interventionist policy that we're seeing at the moment. Artificial intelligence can do a lot of things, and one of them is to generate images. There are various websites that can turn text into auto-generated pictures. For example, you could type in Ian Dunt preparing a Doritos lasagna the size of <laughs> Wembley Stadium. I tried Rishi Sunak cooking a ready meal in a microwave in a tiny flat, and the result did leave something to be desired. I'll post that one on my Twitter feed for, for everyone to admire. Fortunately, Nina is an expert on deepfakes and AI, and if you follow her, you'll see just how good the technology has become. Nina, you've predicted that 90% of all online content could be AI generated by 2025 or 2030. How can that be possible? Well, it's absolutely mind-blowing, but I think we are entering a new era in human communication, even human evolution, given that our primary 
medium of communication is now the digital sphere. And this is happening at precisely the time when you are seeing the emergence of these AI models that can not just generate, it's not only pictures they can generate, but they can generate anything that we've thus far considered to be unique to human creativity or intelligence. So for instance, you can now have these large generative models where you put in a text, type in what you want, and it can generate a unique image of that. But it's not only for images, it can do the same for video, where you type in a video sequence that you want, and it can generate a video. It can do the same for copy. There are already generative models out there, and in fact, AI generative AI companies, where you can just generate a script to a play, uh, a copy for marketing, a blog, just on a few prompts, say what you want, and then the AI will generate it for you. And given that these models are now reaching the rate of exponential acceleration, you're going to be able to see them scale. And these models have only really come to the fore in the last six months, and you're already seeing millions of people playing with them, billions of pieces of content being produced, and you're going to basically think, I think in in the next few years, the amount of AI generated content is going to far outweigh anything that's not generated by AI, 90% in my estimation. I've been thinking about this for the book I'm, I'm finishing at the moment, and I was trying to imagine a scenario when the uh, the Queen and a video, deepfake video emerged of the Queen after her de- death saying something rather unexpected. And uh, yeah, it was it was a fascinating scenario to, to imagine, because I think we can be surprisingly credulous um, when it comes to deepfakes and our willingness to believe them. In your book, you discuss deepfake porn, and the online safety bill is now going to make that a crime. Are you relieved about that? Absolutely. That's low-hanging fruit and well done to the UK for being one of the first countries in the world to take leadership in terms of criminalizing AI-generated non-consensual pornography. Because in order to create this, and by the way, the women are predominant, the victims are 99.9% women, and it's not only female celebrities who are targeted, but normal everyday women, including minors, because all that you need to put someone in AI-generated fake porn is a little bit of training data. So that is images of them from their social media, perhaps a video of them that you can easily scrape over social media. So everyone is potentially a victim. So this is very low-hanging fruit in terms of, yeah, this is bad. Let's criminalize it. Uh, What's really interesting is that I came to this area and I wrote the book Deep Fakes because I had my disinformation background and I was looking at it from the perspective of mis and disinformation. And it started in porn because porn is so pioneering. And since my book has come out, I've realized that this is actually far more profound than just the ability to create sophisticated disinformation with the use of AI, but that this is going to be one of the biggest turning points in human communication because all content, everything, whether it is a legal text, a Hollywood film, a blog post, a podcast can now be generated by artificial intelligence. So that's just going to completely transform the way we communicate, the way we do commerce and the way that we understand the world. A podcast. So we could have fake, oh God, what now? <laughs> it's worth yeah, I mean, do, you, do you guys actually play with any of the AI podcast editing tools? Um, uh, Descript, for instance, where you can 
so you can take our tracks, you can drop them into Descript, and then you can edit the track as though you're editing a Word doc. You know, I think we should try to do that for this <laughs> podcast and see what it comes out with. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, this is already happening. Bloomberg has been running an AI section of stories for a while now. So they no longer use journalists to produce their stories about market moves. That's all done by AI. So right. it's, it terrifies me. Going out of a job soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the, the copy generation is unbelievable. And um, there's a new model coming out probably in December this year. It's called GPT-4, which is a model that's essentially been trained on the corpus of every single text that's ever been produced by humanity. So it's not only that you can ask it to generate a article about the broken housing system in the UK, you can also ask it to write a sonnet in the style of Shakespeare. So AI can not only learn to produce coherent output when prompted with a task, but it can actually distinguish distinct styles as well, which is just obviously mind-blowing. Hannah, as you say, this is bad news for a lot of journalists, and yep. certainly it's bad news for photographers and artists over the next few years. What does this mean for them? It's really hard to say. I mean, you know, Nina's expressed where we are really profoundly. You know, it's a turning point. Thinking about journalism, you know, it does raise these questions of ethics. You know, photo, um, photo editors and so on, part of their job is to uh, interpret where we are. If that, you know, and a, a huge part of their job is going to be interpreting truth and uh, and fake or truth and not truth, however we want to express that. I also think uh, it raises these questions about access to information and gatekeepers. At the moment, there's a lot of chat online about who, like gatekeeping as this terrible thing, that there are people in positions of power, often editors, journalists, people like, people like me, who um, interpret information. And in doing that, we're acting as some kind of filter and gatekeeper. And that's a negative thing because perhaps we're putting our own um, prejudices and our own, uh, I, I suppose, and privileges it, it into play when, when we're doing that. And um, actually, I think this kind of discussion raises the question of how significantly important gatekeepers are around managing the flow of truth as well. So, I mean, this is a huge philosophical area. And I, you know, I can't say that I, I feel vastly uh, sort of prepared <laughs> in terms of, um, you know, my, my view on that right now. But I, but I know I can feel how significant this is as a turning point for everyone who works in information and, and copy uh, and, and content at, as their job. Um, you know, we have responsibilities as well. As, it's fascinating as well. Gavin, who's going to do the job of working out what's fake and what's real? Could we entrust it to the BBC, for example? Um, when I was listening to Hannah talking there, I was thinking that we have enough problems as journalists with shallow fakes like Boris Johnson and uh, Donald Trump. So if if we can't actually sort out and constantly say, do you know what, they've normalised lying in our public life and this is a problem and that's a lie and that's a lie. Uh, the Washington Post did a great job with Trump saying in the end there were 30,000 lies he told in the during his presidency. But that is really difficult. So if we can't do that, how we handle deep fakes, which as Nina described eloquently, I mean, I have no idea whether maybe 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 we're all fake. There's a really serious point here as well. I mean, not just the, the, the horrors of pornography and people having their reputations ruined by other people thinking they've done or said things that they haven't. Going back in history, one of my favorite 
European philosophers was, was Hannah Arendt, who said that what makes people seek out strong leaders, essentially, is not knowing the difference between truth and falsehood not being able to tell what is fact and what is real and what is not. And that this is profound consequences because we're already getting it with people saying all politicians are the same, they all lie. Well, they don't all lie, actually. And they don't all lie in the same way as Trump has. So we have got a real problem as journalists, but also as the rest of our culture. It seems to be. Nina, how else is AI going to affect life in the next few years on a practical level? Well, I think very broadly, we've entered an era of exponential tech-led change that's powered by AI. And generative AI is only one application of that. You already see how multiple advances in artificial intelligence are unfolding in different fields, whether it's uh, predictions or even like very positive advances in the fields of science and medicine. And I think that our lifetime we will experience in one lifetime more tech-led change than the entirety of humanity has experienced before us. So this next few decades are going to be one of flux, of turmoil, of change. Um, it's going to get very tumultuous, but there's a lot of opportunities as well as risks. And I've been reflecting on perhaps why you see so much political turmoil. And I, I truly believe that one reason we see so much global political turmoil is because the kind of analog systems of the past or the kind of ways we structured our society are no longer fit for purpose when it comes to the challenges we have to deal with in the 21st century, whether that's climate change or indeed the immense societal changes that are going to be brought onto us by technology including artificial intelligence. I think the world in 30 years from now, uh, some of it is going to look very similar, but so much of the fundamental structure will have changed beyond our comprehension. Before we go, it's time for our panellists to tell us their escape routes. What have you enjoyed recently that isn't political or it can be political if you only do political stuff like I do because I'm sad. Uh, what have you What have you been up to, Hannah? Uh, well, I'm going to give a serious answer and then a, a slightly ridiculous answer. So um, seriously, uh, another podcast um, that I've been really into over the last year is The Shift, um, which is presented by journalist Sam Baker. And it's all about um, being a woman after 40. Interviews with fascinating women about their careers, about, you know, um, a period of, of their kind of life um, you know, where often women uh, are overlooked in terms of the public discourse. Really great series of guests, but I want to flag up the episode with Kit Duval, the um, working class novelist, absolutely fascinating on the kind of intersection of being working class and a woman and in, in a creative sector. Just really enjoyed that. And um, yeah, if you, if you uh, are interested, go and check that out. It's a great podcast. My ridiculous answer is, I'll be honest with you, I'm exhausted at the moment. I've got two kids, I've just moved house. It's a run up to Christmas. Terrible Christmas films. Absolutely love them. And Netflix has got uh, absolute bangers this year. So, you know, I'm sure somebody listening agrees with me there. Can't always be highbrow. <laughs> well, I would love to listen to this shift. That sounds great. Gavin, how about you? A couple of films. Uh, two amazing German films, actually. Uh, one is All Quiet on the Western Front, which is absolutely stunning, moving and quite upsetting, but just a work of absolute genius. And the other one is called Stasi Comedy, Stasi, a comedy about the Stasi. 
And the premise is that uh, there's a the dinner party in the new East Berlin where a bunch of people who were resisting uh, the DDR, the, uh, the East German uh, police and so on, are sitting around waiting because their dad is getting his Stasi files delivered so they can all go through it and find out what he was up to. And it's a hoot. That's all I would say. I, I didn't think I would ever laugh at the Stasi, but I laughed out loud. And it, very, very funny German film. I really enjoy German comedy because it's, you know, we're so used to laughing at the Germans in British comedy. It's very, it's very good to actually hear German comedy for a change. See, we, we do have a sense of humour. Yeah, you, you absolutely <laughs> do. Him. I mean, half my, yeah, my husband <laughs> yeah, is, is half German, so there's a lot of, lot of German humour in our family. Nina, how about you? I quite literally, okay, also have two children that run up to Christmas. So my husband and I decided that we are going to do a date night. So we actually went, we went to an escape room. <laughs> ah! Oh my God, that's hard. Have you done? <laughs> I know. Yeah, we left our kids at home. We went to an escape room. Like that's the kind of fun that a toddler and a baby means. But it was so fun. Um and we we took the full 60 minutes to escape. It was only three out of five difficulty, apparently. Um, but apparently people, they told us, the, the staff who are obviously in full, um, you know, they, they stay in character. They told us that you get escape room obsessives <laughs> who crack that challenge in like 20 minutes. They just go from escape room to escape room. They're like, oh. This one's no good, Tom, you know, already done that one last week. So that was quite funny. And the other thing I've been doing is I've been listening to, uh, I don't know how I came to this. I think I read an article about Edina Mountbatten and her numerous lovers. So I started listening to the audiobook written by her daughter, um, Pamela Hicks. And it is just insane how they would, again, being the mother of two very young children, age three and one, how they would just kind of leave their kids with the nanny and then go off on respective, you know, adventures with their lovers across the world, <laughs> return once a year. She's like, hello, darling, mommy's back. I was just like, ah, explains a lot about Britain. <laughs> the, the neglect of the British upper yeah. classes towards their children is always something that, you know, I kind of half envy and half <laughs> yeah. despise. Yeah. On the uh, continuing theme of Germany, I, I went to see a play called Good at the Harold Pinter Theatre, which has uh, David Tennant starring in it. It's very, it's very good. It's basically about the moral compromises that a man, a university professor in Germany makes during the 1930s to accommodate himself with uh, Nazism. And it's um, when you see the current state of the Conservative Party, which, of course, is not Nazi, but there are, you know, definite similarities there. And um, on, on a lighter note, I, yeah, I, I love William Boyd as a novelist. He's just so much fun. I never understand why he's supposed to be literary fiction because he's not really literary at all. He's just pure kind of um, pure excitement and fun and driving the narrative forward. But his latest novel, The Romantic, is a, is a great read when you're trying to wind down from trying to finish your book, as I, as I have been doing. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thanks to you for listening. We'll see you at the end of the week for another episode. Remember, if you want to help Oh God, What Now? You can always back us on Patreon. You'll get the podcast early without adverts, exclusive merchandise, and a shout out on the show. So here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop along with a thank you to some of our lovely backers. Thank you from me to Quentin Neal, Jane McLaren, William Burke, Alex J, and Francesca Stefanato. 
Hello and thank you to Chris Miles, Mark Bateman, Joe Colfield, Caroline Herring and Andrew Baines. And for me, thanks for your support to Natasha, DJ Hanrade, Alison White, Will Barr, Barbara Coulson and Thomas Sterling. And finally, thank you from me to Alistair Keith, Susan Hoyle, Marjorie Bluer, David Norris and Ben Roynan. See you on Friday. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Ros Taylor with Nina Schick, Gavin Esler and Hannah Fern. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. With additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Kasia Tomasiewicz and me, Alex Reese. The AI can take this edit from my cold, dead hands. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production.